born in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends But when I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America This is Karen Schoen. You are listening to the Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, who has a phenomenal program, folks. Please go flca.org, learn about the micro schools and learn what you can do to mentor a child, teach a child to read. This is the most important gift that you can give them is being able to read. And I know that the world is filled with horrible things. And as things progress, we're going to see worse and worse and worse. But we can't live just in a mode of depression. And so I have always, through my life, borrowed almost exactly what Tucker Carlson said the other day. And I said, wow, he maybe he's been listening to me. Who knows? But what he said was, if you want to be happy, care only about what the people who love you say, because the rest of the world doesn't count. They don't know who you are. They don't know where you're from. They don't know what your life is about. And you know what else, folks? They really don't care. So the thing that you have to do is be in such in tune with your family and with those around you that love you. And once you get past that other spot, you can take those punches. You can take what they say, they're only words. And when you break them down and you ask them questions, they have even no idea what those words mean. So the ones that are important are the ones that love you. And remember that, especially at this holiday season. I did want to give you one important announcement before we continue our show, which is a big treat. Um, And that is that our Congress this week will be voting on the NDAA. You must get a hold of Speaker Johnson, of Representative Jim Jordan, and the Judiciary Committee. And I'm going to give you those numbers now. So I'm going to give you a second to get those number two pencils out or your pen or whatever it is that you write with. And please, Speaker Johnson, 202 Two two five four thousand. Jim Jordan, two o two 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 five two six seven six. The Judiciary Committee, two o two 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 five six nine o six. Why do I want you to call them? Tell them no, absolutely no on the NDAA, which we now have discovered has been designed to use their tactics to spy on Americans. And that is intolerable and anti-constitution. So they always talk about the constitution and how we're going to destroy democracy, of which I always 
say, good, because we don't have a democracy, so let's destroy it. But we always say, how did they get that information? Where did that come from? Well, they have been spying on us for years and years and years, and it's time to stop especially because we're funding that program. So tell and call your representative, tell them to vote no, and tell Speaker Johnson to trash the NDAA the way that it is. Well, that's about enough of my rant today because I want to reserve the time for a very special guest who has agreed to come back. I had such a wonderful reception from the... Uh, discussion that we had with Bill Federer, who is my very favorite historian, and wrote an incredible piece on the AmericanMinute.com. If you don't get it, please sign up and get it now about Hanukkah and what Hanukkah really represents. And when I read it, I kept on saying to myself, we're doing the same thing over and over again. Doesn't anybody learn? And I realized people don't learn because they don't know history. So I contacted Bill, and he has agreed to continue giving us a history lesson of America. And if you remember the last time we stopped, we were in the 1600s. So we have a long way to go. And Bill has agreed to come back and give us lessons throughout the year so that we will be caught up on the real meaning of America. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bill. I really appreciate all of the wonderful, wonderful work that you are doing and the incredible books that you have written. And by the way, folks, those books are great Christmas presents. So thank you, Bill, for joining me today. Well, it's great to be with you, Karen. And Bill, we stopped in the 1600s and the pilgrims had just landed and then time ran out. So I'm so glad that you've agreed to come back and bring us forward a little bit more. So maybe we need to look at the 1700s. What happened to America then? Yeah, well, um, a little bit on the pilgrims. The, um, the Hebrew Republic, that was the first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. This was studied by the pilgrims and the Puritans. And for those that uh, study of world history, it was the first instance of a nation ruling itself without a king. So around 1400 BC, several million Israelites come out of Egypt. They go into the promised land and there's no king. And it's a system that works because everyone was taught the law and everyone was personally accountable to God to follow the law. It was the first instance, so it's around 1400 BC to King Saul, right? When he got uh, anointed by Samuel, and if you read the, the setting of it, it was people demanded a king, and Samuel cries, and the Lord says, well, they did not reject you, they rejected me. So God's original plan for ancient Israel was to not have a king, everybody be taught the law, everybody be personally accountable to God to follow the law. Uh, ancient Israel was the first nation with private land ownership because wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You, you cross the king, he'll take away your land and kill you. But in ancient Israel, the land was permanently titled to each family. If you own land, you can accumulate stuff the Bible called that being blessed. And you can give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity. It's interesting, Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, 
abolition of private property. So if you don't own anything, how can you be charitable? How can you give away what you don't have? The idea is that you get stuff as blessings from God, and then you have opportunities to show on the outside the love of God that's on the inside by being charitable. Ancient Israel was the first nation where people could read. So in Egypt, only 1% of the country could read. Reading and writing was the scribes' secret knowledge. They they had 3,000 hieroglyphs. They kept them complicated on purpose as job security. They were needed as a class of of scribes to interpret these complicated things. And so only the upper class could read. In Sumeria, had 1,500 cuneiform characters, only for kings and court records and scribes. China had 10,000 characters, only for court records. When Moses comes down the mountain, he has the law in a 22-character alphabet. First letter's Aleph, second letter Beth, sound familiar. It's so easy to learn. Kids could learn it. Ancient Israel is the first nation in the world with a literate populace where everyone could read. And um, not only could everyone read the law, but everyone was responsible to enforce the law. So the verse everybody knows is Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. The verse right before it says, confront your neighbor directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Uh, One of the translations says, rebuke your neighbor openly so you'll not incur their guilt upon you. And so they were loving each other, loving each other, but they're correcting each other. It was a self-policing system. And so the children were taught the law. God chose Abraham because he knew he would teach his children the ways of the Lord. And uh, God told Moses, teach your children and your children's children. So the battle today is who gets to teach the children? I use the illustration of um, uh, software in a sense. um, So you're a spirit, mind, and body, and your mind is like a super fancy computer. It's more than that, but it's at least that. And your body's like the computer case which makes it silly for people to argue over what color the computer case is. Imagine if I were to say blue computers are better than green computers. It's like, really doesn't matter what color the computer or the iPhone is. What matters, what software is running on it? What apps are on it? It doesn't matter what color somebody's skin is, is what behavioral software is running on their brain. And is it cancel them, get them to lose their job, make their kids pay? Or is it do good to those that hate you? You know, turn the other cheek. Um, and, And so battle today is who gets to load the software on the next generation's brains. And the other side wants to put viruses and malware and corrupted files on these little kids' brains. Back to ancient Israel. The children were taught the law. Everybody in the country could read. Everybody in the country helped enforce the law. And every man was in the militia. Wherever there's a king, he has an army. He's the one that has the weapons, and he uses it to enforce his will. Well, in Israel, there was no king for 400 years. Every man was in the army. Every man had a sword upon their thigh, and they were ready at a moment's notice to defend their wife and kids and community. Ancient Israel had uh, no prisons. The uh, in, in Egypt, Joseph was in prison for several years. But in ancient Israel, when a crime was committed, uh, you took the accused and you got the elders and you went to the gates of the city and you had the trial right then. And of course, there was a city of refuge that someone could run away to in a capital case, capital murder case. And but it was a immediate thing. It wasn't like Joseph wasting away in prison in Egypt for several centuries. And, and then Israel had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. What's that? Egypt, you need food. The government will give you food, but it's an exchange for your cattle, your land, your lives. In Israel, you need food. Well, everyone, when they harvest their field, they leave the corners, the gleanings, 
for the poor people to pick through, like Ruth. This way, the poor were taken care of in a decentralized manner without some political leader collecting everything and doling it back out in exchange for votes. Israel was a system that empowered uh, the individual. And then the big question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow this internal moral? Well, Israel had the key ingredient. There is a God that is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And then you think, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police. And now God knew the Israelites would sin. So once a year, they had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They brought the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy Holy, sprinkled it on the mercy seat, and everyone's sins and the whole nation were forgiven for the past year. And they started the new year off with a clean slate. And in Christian doctrine, that refers to Jesus, the, the Lamb of God. You're forgiven not just for the last year, but your whole life. And Israel had this system. It was called the Hebrew Republic. And it worked for four centuries until... The priest stopped teaching it. You said, they what? Yeah, here's Eli, the high priest. His own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. And then you have another Levite with a silver graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. And the tribe of Dan comes along and steals the graven image and tells this Levite, hey, come along with us. You can be a priest to our whole tribe. And you're reading the stories thinking, uh, what is this Levite doing with a graven image? Isn't that one of the commandments? You're not supposed to have them. And then there's the terrible story of a Levite with a concubine. The law says the Levite's to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with the woman he's not even married to, and they're traveling, and their house is surrounded by sodomites. Something about that behavior that appears at the very last stages of the people ruling themselves is casting off a self-restraint, abandonment to passion, and uh, they bang on the door. The poor concubine's raped to death, and by the time you're grossed out with the story, you read this line, every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Why? Because the priest stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. Turns into chaos. They all go to Samuel the prophet. They say, we want to be like the other countries, and we want a king. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you. They rejected me. And then they get King Saul. And King Saul is pouting that his son, uh, Jonathan, became friends with David. And he goes to his soldiers. None of you care about me. And one soldier, Doeg the Edomite, says, King, I care. I was at this town called Nob, and the priest gave David some bread and the sword of Goliath that was stored there. Saul says, bring those priests to me. They show up, turns to his men, says, kill them. The men hesitate. Doeg the Edomite says, I'll kill them, goes out there and kills them all, 70 of them. What just happened? The soldiers had been following the old system where everybody's accountable to God to follow the law. And the law says you need two or more witnesses before you condemn somebody to death. There's only one witness, this Doeg guy. And so they're hesitating saying, okay, king's telling me to kill, but I'm accountable to God. God says there need to be two witnesses. And so I, uh, they still have a conscience. Doeg says, king, I'm going to surrender my conscience to you. You tell me to kill, I'll kill. And you tell me to kill the baby in the womb, I'll kill it. You tell me there's no more male and female, fine. I'm, I'm just a bunch of mush. Whatever the government tells me, I'm just going to obey. Like when you blow the trumpets, I'll bow to your statue, right? So a, a, a dictator always wants to Get control of your conscience, like Nimrod, who wants you to be afraid of him instead of being afraid of God. And they get King Saul. Now, why is this story important? Because the kings of England looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the King Saul and on part of the Bible, the divine rod of kings, God chose me. The Calvinist Puritans that looked to, that settled New England, 
in America, they look to the pre-King Saul period of ancient Israel. 400 years, millions of people, no king. It worked because everybody was taught the law. Everybody was personally accountable to God to follow the law. So King Saul, in a sense, is the divider between England and America. And that's why they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard. To this day, Yale has Hebrew characters on its coat of arms, truth and light. The, uh, the kings of England were dominionists. They were theocrats. You had to believe the way they told you to believe, or they would kill you. There's a movie called God's Outlaw, and it's the life of William Tyndall, and, and it goes through King Henry VIII and how he uh, would kill the, the Protestants uh, when he was Catholic, but then he switched to Catholic, from Catholic to Anglican, and he killed you know, the Catholics uh, like Sir Thomas More. Um, but then he was Anglican, and he didn't like Puritans and Presbyterians, and so, and so whatever the king believed, the kingdom had to believe. So the king was a, uh, he wanted to have a, a theocracy. You had to believe religiously what he tells you to believe. And uh, in America, we said, no, uh, your worship of God is only pleasing to God if it's voluntarily given, freedom of conscience. And so in ancient Israel, this first 400 years, no king, every town got to elect their elders. And, and so it was a bottom-up form of government. And so they had a, a a meeting house in every town called the synagogue. And so in New England, they had a meeting house, every town. And that's where the, the pastor would teach the, the Bible, and that's where they would do their city business. And it was government from the consent of the governed. And when the revolution starts, the king sends over a royal governor, Thomas Gage, and he outlaws meeting houses. He says, democracy is too prevalent in America. We don't need the people meeting and giving their consent to stuff. You just obey government mandates, top down. And the people were like, you know, we have a century under our belt of us following this Hebrew Republic model where the, the people in town get to give their consent. The king's agent said, no, 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 you follow mandates. The government issues a mandate, you jump. You're a zombie, you're a robot, you do what you're told. And the people are like, no, 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 uh, we have a conscience. Nothing happens unless we give our consent to it, bottom up, government from the consent of the governed. And it went back and forth until it turned into a revolutionary war, and we won. And so America is a bottom-up form of government, government from the consent of the governed. It came from these New England pastors that got their ideas from the Reformation, that got their ideas from the Bible, what part of the Bible, that first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, you brought to mind something that has been going on in my mind for quite some time, and that is um, the Israelites were always told they were the chosen ones. And that became a very big sticking point because people began to think that, oh, they're uppity. They think they're the chosen ones. But that's not what it meant at all. It meant those first 400 years when they were interacting with God with no intermediary. Am I correct on that? This is where the chosen comes from. Uh, there was nobody in between, nobody to say, no, you, you, you know, uh, you have to listen to me and not God. They interacted directly with God and they owed their allegiance and consequences came from God. Um, is this where that comes from? Yeah, that's a very key part of it. And, um, you know, from a theological point of view, I go all the way back to Cain and Abel. And uh, Cain wanted to worship God, but he did it through his works. And we know it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So Cain was trying to work his way to heaven. 
And if you do works, you're going to be proud of your works. And God resists the proud. And when Cain's works were rejected, his countenance fell. His pride was hurt. He was embarrassed. Now, there was only the brother, mom, dad, and God, but that, he was embarrassed. And then he got filled full of hatred and anger and murdered his brother, Abel. Abel worshiped God, but he did it through the lamb. And it's this picture. God is on one side. We are on the other side. We've sinned. Our sin separates from God. And the lamb takes the judgment for all of our sins. And so it's almost like the spiritual descendants of Cain are always trying to kill the spiritual descendants of Abel. And so Noah, when he got off the ark, uh, he had two of every animal, but he had seven of every clean animal. And among those were lambs. And so Noah gets off the ark. He sacrifices a lamb. And then you have Moses has every family in Israel put kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their house. And when the angel of death brings judgment in Egypt, these houses have the blood on them. What, what does the blood say? The judgment has already been paid for this house. The lamb took the judgment in our place so you can pass over to the next house. Tabernacle in the wilderness, the high priest on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, took the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. You have the presence of the Lord between the angels on the lid of the mercy seat. And then uh, underneath is the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments on the inside. And here's the high priest approaching. And you have God looking at the Ten Commandments, looking at this priest representing the people and the people have sinned. And they're about to be judged. But then he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice on the lid between the presence of the Lord above and the law down below. And it's like, we've, we've sinned, but this lamb took the judgment in our place. And then you have Solomon offers a thousand lambs, right? David, you know, when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant into city of Jerusalem, you know, every so many steps, they'd sacrifice a lamb. And then again, thousand Solomon sacrificed. And finally, John the Baptist in the New Testament points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So it's this idea of God is on one side. We're on the other side. Our sin separates from God. The Lamb pays for the sin. It's the Isaiah 53 uh, is a lamb to the slaughter. He was led that uh, the iniquity of us all was placed upon him. And when you look at God's people, they are in a covenant with God because of the lamb. And Abraham sacrificed the lamb, right? He's going to, or the ram, but it's this, he's going to the top of Mount Moriah. He's going to offer his son Isaac and God stops him and, and God provides the ram. And, um, and then again, uh, so, so it's this idea that when you, you know, the, the, the Jews, when they were scattered around the world, they would bow toward Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, that's where the temple was. The temple is where the sacrifice was. And so they were, and then Abraham's in, a, in his covenant with God through the lamb. Anyway, I know I've got a little theological there, but, um, uh, but God's people, uh, the, the Israelites, they were a, the whole rest of the world was all these other religions, and they basically can be all boiled down to works, that you're doing something, you're putting on fig leaves, you're trying to do something, you know. And, and Israel was the one that says, no, we're right with God because of this uh, this lamb that uh, was sacrificed, and that the lamb sacrificed at the temple, Jerusalem, we're going to bow toward Jerusalem, we're showing our faith that it's it's that covenant of through the lamb, the shed blood of the lamb. Okay, so now we are in present-day America. And we have one group that says, we're going to follow God. And another group that says, we're going to take your land. So aren't we doing exactly the same thing that happened in ancient times? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Josephus, the Jewish commentator, said when uh, Nimrod 
um, built the Tower of Babel, he made everybody in town bake bricks or he would bring, he would burn, he would kill them. So everybody, so it was oppressive over a man. And that Nimrod wanted to build this tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. And so Nimrod said, instead of being uh, in, in fear of God, be in fear of me. And so he is the first one that wanted to have a one world government because the whole population of the world was more or less centered around there. <clears throat> and he wanted to control them. And God can, comes down, confuses the languages and the people scatter into language groups that turn into nations. Nations were God's invention to prevent a one world government. And, but every generation comes along, you got some king wanting to conquer other nations. And if they were, did not die, they'd have been happy to conquer them all and, and go back to this one world government. Well, the king of England was a globalist. He was a one world government guy. The, the sun never set on the British Empire. He had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and America. And he had the, the sun never set on the British Empire. He, he had a navy and a fleet and and so America's founders didn't like a globalist king telling us what to do. They broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. And again, they looked to ancient Israel, this first 400 years, the Hebrew Republic as the model. And they took it serious. You read their writings and they would say like, George Washington is our American Joshua. <laughs> and I mean, they were constantly, you know, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and we crossed the ocean and they were looking for their promised land. And this is our promised land. And they identified with the, the Hebrew Republic. England had a 15-year experiment with this. It was called the English Commonwealth, and they had the Puritans, and they were looking back to ancient Israel. But uh, when Oliver Cromwell died, they brought uh, his son couldn't keep it together. They brought back Charles II. And so there's a great quote from Oz Guinness. And he said, uh, covenantal ideas failed in England, but they were the winning cause in New England. And, um, and he goes back and says that covenant is behind constitution. So our constitution is a secularized form of the Hebrew covenant. And the word federal is Latin for covenant. We have a covenant form of government where we rule ourselves, bottom up, will of the people, instead of some king, some dictator ruling through mandates. In other words, all the constitution is, is a way to prevent a president from ruling through mandates. Well, it looks like nobody is paying attention because here we have the dictator in the White House trying to rule through mandates. Bill, unfortunately, we're going to run out of time, so will you come back again? I'd be happy to. Bill, please tell everyone where they can find you and your wonderful books. Well, thank you. My website's AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. And the book that we talked about today is called um, Who is the King in America? And it's an overview of all the world's history, most common form of government's kings. They keep getting bigger until the King of England was the biggest. America's founders flipped it, made the people the king. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. They got their idea from ancient Israel, that first 400 years out of Egypt, the Hebrew Republic. And um, it's a fascinating book called Who is the King in America? And I also, they can sign up for a, an email. I send out a history email several times a week called American Minute. Thank you, Bill. Folks, but before I sign off for the break, uh, some very important information just came in uh, from Defend Florida regarding uh, some bills that we have going forward with election integrity. So I need you to get out your pencils and pens and paper and jot this down and call your legislator and tell them to support these bills. HB 135. 
voter registration application. This will eliminate the DMV from getting involved in writing voter registrations. Number 359, the mandate for the tabulators. This is very important. It will eliminate the mandate, uh, making sure that Florida will now be able to hand count, and hopefully that will lead to total hand count. Also, foreign influence over the machines. That means that no machine that comes from any foreign entity will be able to use to count votes. So chances are your precinct is going to have to change or your county will have to change their machines. Now is a great time to get them used to hand counting. Number 671, that has to do with the ballot boxes. And we are looking for a better way to transport the ballot boxes. Also, there will be a bill on citizenship, but I don't have the number for that one yet. Please contact your legislator. It is very important that we get help with these bills. Don't go away, folks. I will be right back. You're listening to Karen Schoen. This is the Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems, and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins 
in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back. This is Karen Schoen. You are listening to the Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Uh, folks in Florida, we are starting our session. It's going to be starting right after the new year, and there are going to be many exciting bills that uh, will be uh, in will be influencing our schools. But that does not matter because, sadly, most of the teachers don't follow them. So what is recommended is get your kids out of those public indoctrination clinics masquerading as public schools because your children are not learning anything except to hate. And that is a very sad thing to learn. We have to get past that. Now, we learn from Bill in the first segment how much our history is being replicated today and the hatred of Jews has not stopped. Uh, and it's not going to stop anytime soon, mostly because the elite don't want it to stop. And many of them, as we are learning, are self-hating Jews. So it's just a world full of hatred. And again, I will say what Tucker Carlson said, the only people that are important that you should be listening to are the people that love you. The ones that love you, listen to them. Otherwise, it's just words and it's not worth getting a fight about. But it is most important that we tell the truth about. And that's what this show is all about. That's why education is so important. And we have a very special guest today. And I am very excited to be able to have this conversation with him, Sharam Hadian. And he is a pastor and a former Muslim. And what better explanation to describe what's going on and what is the truth than to listen to somebody who has actually experienced it and can explain what this is all about. What is all of this hatred all about? Where is it coming from? And now we're learning that it's real. It is real. So we have to understand our history and learn not to, not to repeat it. Thank you so much, Sharam, for joining me today. It is a pleasure to have you with us. I certainly do appreciate it. Tell everyone a little bit about your ministry and a little bit about the experiences that you have had, because as we were talking, it is quite fascinating. Well, first of all, Karen, thank you for having me on, on the program. It's an honor 
Um, you know, my background, as you mentioned, I am a former Muslim. I was born in the, the, the country of Iran, um, and my family fled there just before the fall of that government in 1979. And I always tell people that um, I actually lived through a coup because uh, what happened in 1979 was not a revolution. It was actually an infiltration and a coup and an overthrow of the government of Iran, um, which has has now uh, and is continues to be governed by Islam. So I, I firsthand have seen uh, a nation that was fairly free um, now under an Islamic rule for the last almost 45 years. Uh, my, but my family fled. My dad was in the military under the Shah of Iran and um, kind of got a sense that things were heading south and, and uh, got out and, and got us out. Uh, and then subsequently later, when in, in uh, not in my teens, but in my 20s, I began to um, question uh, greatly my Islamic background and my Muslim faith. And uh, as a result of that, uh, by the grace of God, uh, people were put in, into my path who were Christians and very boldly uh, shared about Christianity and about the Bible and, and about Christ and that journey, ultimately, at 28 years old, uh, 20, about 24 years ago now, just over 24 years ago, uh, brought me out of Islam uh, and led me to become a follower of Christ, become a Christian. And so I've been uh, a Christian for 24 years and uh, then became a pastor. And uh, uh, a lot of our ministry, uh, my, my ministry is called Truth in Love. A lot of our ministry uh, deals with speaking the truth in love, obviously from the Bible, but also about events that are happening in the world, things that are happening right in, in front of us. And a huge part of our ministry is dealing with the subject of Islam because I came out of it. I witnessed what it did to my birth country. Uh, I don't recognize Iran anymore. It is not the country that I grew up in, that I was born in. Um, it has been devastated and destroyed by this evil ideology uh, that is Islam, uh, that has been a scourge on the planet for the last 1400 years. I do not have any hatred in my heart for individual Muslims, but I do have a deep-seated hatred of this ideology because I think it's absolutely evil. It is absolutely perverted. And I, and I lived it. I came out of it. Uh, I teach on it all the time. And uh, our ministry tries to expose it and bring people to the truth and the knowledge of, uh, of Christ, but also to the truth and knowledge of understanding what the agenda of Islam is for the world. So that's that's kind of the quick back backstory. One of the things that I think confuses most people and they may not understand and perhaps you can explain it to them is that Islam is not just a religion. It is a way of life. And all of the uh, followers are expected to live and within this, I guess it's a, a, a it's a government. It's a political force. So they have put together the things that we have learned should never be put together, which is the combination of religion and politics. Um, and it, they have merged that and meshed that into their holy idea of hatred. How sad. You're absolutely correct. Uh, it, it, is, it is perhaps the, the, the largest misunderstanding of Islam. Uh, that that and the idea that it's a quote religion of peace. I think those two kind of go hand in hand. That that uh, you know uh, need to be 
addressed. But going back to what you mentioned, this is going back to the very beginning of Islam because the prophet of Islam, the supposed prophet of Islam, Muhammad, he realized uh, after failing in 10 years of being in Mecca and failing to really convert that many people in 10 years by the supposed uh, peaceful version, you know, the early verses of the Quran, uh, when he migrated to the city that was called Yathrib, which later was re renamed Medina, he began to realize, if I make Islam political, now I can put together an army and with, with wealth and with, with power and now conquer. And so Islam, uh, then he, of course, claims that he got these later verses. And, and let's not forget that nobody else was an eyewitness to any of this on the, of this revelation, but this one guy. Uh, and now Islam takes on this political nature. So I always tell people that what Sharia, you know, that terminology that people are familiar with, and maybe some people are not familiar with, Sharia, of course, means the way or the path. And so we say Sharia law because it is a legal system, but it's really Sharia law. It's really the path or way of that God, the false God, Allah. And I know it's a false God because, remember, I came out of it. I, I know it's not the true God. And Sharia is totality. There is no separation between what is a religious command, for example, pray five times a day, versus what, what must be done legally or lawfully. So when Muslims take over a nation, like in Iran, the constitution immediately became Sharia-based. So now uh, the laws for men and women, the laws for women, for example, the rights, the fact that women have half of the rights of men, women are secondary uh, in, 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 in value and property. The eyewitness or the testimony of a woman is only half that of a man. They must cover up uh, uh, the, the, the treatment of homosexuals, the treatment of minorities, the treatment of, of religious minorities. All of the things that are now religious became governmental. And that's the biggest problem is that the Western nations and Western leaders seem to think, and of course, Islam itself deceives them by saying, oh, we're just a religion. And therefore, we need to be protected under the First Amendment here in the United States. And I've spent years trying to, to share with friends of mine who are legislators, uh, as, certainly at the, at the state level, to say, listen, the reason we must pass laws to protect our constitution from any foreign law, including Sharia, is because it is not just religious, it is governmental. There is no separation of the mosque and the state. And that is to our downfall because the West continues to refuse to understand and continues to give cover to Islam as simply a religion and therefore it's protected. You can't say anything against it, uh, otherwise now you are an Islamophobe. That is, thank you, because I really, truly believe that most people do not understand that, because, of course, in America, we are told uh, you have to separate religion and politics, and uh, never the twain shall meet. So the idea of it being combined together is so foreign for us to understand, and it it becomes inconceivable that we have to follow Sharia in order that Muslims would have to follow Sharia, which then 
I would assume would have to replace the Constitution with their law. So they would be looking to get rid of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And see, one of the things that I teach, Karen, that I think a lot of people don't teach, in fact, I don't really know anybody else that teaches it, that that talks on Islam, is that we have to understand Islam operates in in, in what's called two houses. Um, And this directly comes from the Quran because of the abrogation or the changing is that there's those early verses that they act one way. And then there's the latter verses when they get what's called the upper hand and power, they act differently. So these two houses, according to Islamic law, it is referred to as Dar al-Harb, which means the house of war. That's what the word Harb means. And then Dar al-Islam or the house of surrender. Islam never meant peace. Unlike what Obama said, Islam means surrendered one. And so you either you are there in the so when Muslims are in a nation, let's say here in America, and they don't have the upper hand, they don't have power, they're in a house of war, they're at warfare, they're they're in a state of war against non-Muslims until they get the upper hand. And once they get the upper hand, then they declare themselves to be the house of Islam. Now, in the lower house, they can deceive. And part of that deception is to be able to claim Islam is just a religion, Islam is peaceful and tolerant. But once they get to the upper hand, now they must impose Sharia on all people. And that's why when you go, for example, to where I've been to Cedar Riverside outside of Minneapolis, you know, a suburb of Minneapolis, where they're now broadcasting the Islamic call of prayer uh, five times a day over 20 city blocks. Uh, and yet Christians are never allowed to ring church bells. But, you know, the Muslims can broadcast their, their uh, horrific Islamic call of prayer. In that community, you talk to Muslims and they'll tell you, which one are you going to follow? The United States Constitution? Or Sharia, they'll tell you, well, we have to follow Sharia. Now, why would they be so honest? Because that now is an enclave. That is now their upper house. The same thing happened in Hamtramck, a former mm. Polish community north of Dearborn, Michigan. Now it's 50% plus 50 plus percent Muslim population. The city council, the mayor, the police chief, all Muslims. They've all been elected. They're governmental. And what did the city council do? They're imposing Sharia on that community. And one of the things that they they, they, they uh, did to their leftist friends is they then banned the pride flag in Dearborn. The leftists had a fit. They're like, wait a second. We thought you Muslims support us on the LGBTQ plus, 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 plus. I don't understand. Why would you turn on us? Well, because you're a fool. You don't understand Islam. You don't understand that when they get the upper house, they're governed by Sharia. And Sharia doesn't allow homosexuality. In fact, Sharia says you must be killed. So this is the, uh, the, 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 the main problem. Again, it, it is an absolute failure of, of our leadership in the West to understand these two houses, understand how Islam operates from one to the other, and understand that when they impose, they must destroy any law in that nation that is against Sharia. And the United States Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our protections, our declaration is absolutely antithetical. In fact, I have a DVD on my website called Islam's Assault on the U.S. Constitution. And, and, and it is all about how it is antithetical. It is never going to coexist, just like it's not coexisting in Europe, in uh, New Zealand, in Australia, in Canada. It will not coexist until they s- seek to take over. So even by saying I'm a moderate Muslim, 
you really have to stay okay. What do you believe? You should be following it up. Excuse me. With the next question, which is, do you believe in Sharia or the Constitution? And then that would show. But if they can lie, then they could say that they follow the Constitution. You'd never be able to trust them to be able to tell the truth. You, that's an excellent point. And in fact, I've done this multiple times, dozens and dozens of times. When I was back in Washington State uh, back in 2011 and 12, I was running for governor and um, the Muslim fr- uh, Muslim Brotherhood Front Group CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, uh, labeled me as the Islamophobic candidate for governor, which I took as a badge of honor. You know, And then in 2015, the Southern Poverty Law Center put our ministry as a hate group. I took that as a badge of honor. But when I was exposing them, one of the things they would come to my meetings. And so I'd sit there and, and the representative of care would sit there. And I said, so you're you're claiming that, uh, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood or Islam is not violent. Um, it is peaceful that uh, it is the radicals that are perverting Islam. So let me ask you a question. Um, and, and I would do the same thing you just said. Number one, do you denounce the imposition of Sharia? Well, guess what? They're silent. They can't answer the question. Because if they answer the question uh, and, and denounce Sharia, they're now denouncing Islam. So you see, they're, they're lying can go to a point, uh, and, and the point that it stops is they can't denounce Islam. So they can lie about many things, including being a Christian, but they cannot denounce. That's why Obama lied about being a Christian, right? Because he's we know everybody knew he's a Muslim. Come on, give me a break. But yet he lied, I'm a Christian, right? And, and many Christians believed him. Oh, he's a Christian. no. He's lying to you. He's a Marxist Muslim, and he's lying to you. And so, so I, then I would ask the, the care representative, all right, in Islam, it teaches jihad. Do you denounce jihad? Do you denounce violent jihad that you can use force to establish the religion of Islam? Guess what? Silence. No answer. He would just sit there and cross his arm. Why? Because they can't answer. They can't deny that. Then I finally asked it. Well, one of the teachings that Islam teaches is that I, when I left Islam, I'm considered an apostate. And under clear Islamic teaching, both from the Quran and from the Sharia law manual, I must be killed. Do you denounce uh, the killing of apostates? Guess what? No answer, because they can't denounce any teachings of the prophet of Islam. And that's my number one argument, by the way, Karen, of why Islam cannot coexist with the United States Constitution, because if Islam teaches that if you leave the religion, you must be killed, then Islam does not support freedom of religion. Therefore, it is antithetical to our constitution. And that's one of the things we should be focusing on to be able to ban Muslims from running for office, ban Muslims from holding any position in government, um, unless they're willing to, in writing, denounce Sharia, Islam, uh, the teachings of Muhammad, which they'll never do, because the moment that they put their hand on, now we don't even make them put their hand on the Bible, Bible, right? Right. On the Quran. Uh, Keith Ellison and and, uh, Andre Carson, all these members of Congress now, all these different levels of government, they should not be allowed. It is is traitorous. It is treason. It should be no different than how we dealt with the communists, where we would say, "You you, you are an enemy of the Constitution. Islam is an enemy of the United States Constitution and every free government, free nation around the world that believes in freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and so forth and so on. And that's going to be the toughest nut to crack, especially now 
yeah. um, because of what's going on. You can see that happening. Now, I wanted to ask you as a former teacher, uh, I saw some of the books that the children are reading. And of course, we hear that that's not true. And the children are not reading anything bad about the Jews or killing the Jews. Um, but I believe that the indoctrination is starting in elementary school. It's starting the minute the child is born. Is this something that is true or is it a uh, propaganda that it's not really true? Uh, well, first of all, uh, th there's there's plenty of evidence. If you're speaking of, for example, in Gaza, there's plenty of evidence uh, because uh, even the, you know, the, the liberal ADL um, uh, has followed, you know, the rise of anti-Semitism and said that the greatest anti-Semitism on the planet is in Gaza. And, and, the, and the, most of it is within the Middle East. Um, we know that the United Nations funding money to, for example, their UNRWA program uh, that is in Gaza. We know that that money has been used to promote uh, the teachings that uh, Jews are inferior, that Jews um, must be conquered, that they are occupiers, that they are filthy, that they are uh, Zionists and so forth and so on. That, that, that is indisputable. And anybody says that is not looking into the program of how the money has been used. The question is, that's also happening in America. And then on top of that, is that rooted in Islam? So, so there's two questions. One is, are they teaching it? I think the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, the second question is, is that like radicalism or is that rooted in Islam? Well, it's rooted in Islam because the Quran itself teaches, first of all, that Islam is the final religion. It teaches that Christianity and Judaism have been abrogated. They've been changed. They were corrupted. And so therefore, supposedly God, quote, had to send a final prophet. Number two, Islam teaches, Karen, that Jews have been devolved. Not evolved, because you know, I don't believe in evolution, but they have devolved. And because they, uh, of, their, of their rebellion against God, he devolved them, and they are like, the Quran says, apes, pigs, and monkeys. And the prophet of Islam, in one of his hadiths, that is quoted by imams and clerics all over the world, will say and has said, the last hour will not come, meaning the last hour when Islam will dominate the world, supposedly, until uh, the Jews will hide themselves behind every tree and every rock. And uh, the Muslims are commanded to, to go behind every tree and every rock and kill every last Jew. And so this is the teaching of Islam. This is not radicalism. This is not just Hamas or just ISIS, or just Iran. This is fundamental and core to the teaching of Islam. Now, is there a Muslim that says, well, I don't want to believe that? My dad was one of them. My dad, Karen, was a lukewarm Muslim. He, 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 was, uh, he was a pork-eating, uh, smoking, uh, alcohol-drinking, quote-unquote, Muslim. Well, he was not a practicing Muslim. But, and he never taught me to hate Jews. But when I looked at the teachings, the Quran, and the teachings of Muhammad in the Sunnah, which means the traditions, I see the hatred of the Jewish people, the hatred of Christians, the hatred of those who stand against Islam. It is core to this ideology. It cannot be separated from it because this ideology is inherently evil. How big of a threat do you think this is on America as 
we see what's going on on the border and these people are coming in unchecked. And unfortunately, we only have a few minutes left. So I'm going to ask you to come back because this is very, very important, I feel. But in the next couple of minutes, can you tell us what you think uh, our national security situation is as these people are coming into our country? Um, it, it is something that I've been concerned about for many, many years, something that I've spoken on for many, many, many years. Uh, number one, starting with unvetted refugees that have come in from Afghanistan, from Syria, from uh, Iran, from other parts of the world. Then, of course, our non-existent border where we just saw uh, l- earlier or last week, we saw in one day 10,000 um, military age men from China, from other parts of the world, Middle East coming across our border. We know the Iranians are coming, the Afghanis are coming, the Syrians are coming, the Pakistanis are coming. And now Obiden, I call him Obiden, he wants to bring in even more. Um, it is a grave concern because um, where Israel supposedly was cut off, got, caught, caught off guard, I, America is not being caught off guard. America and this administration is allowing it. This is intentional. And these military-age men are not coming here for a vacation. We know that there are Hezbollah cells in America. We know that there are uh, uh, military-age spies in America. We know that they're training the individuals that are coming for urban warfare. Um, That is why I think that the summer of 2020 and, and the riots and the burning of our streets that we saw, I think was a dress rehearsal for 2024. Um, it is a, of grave concern that we're going to see, unfortunately, attacks on American soil, uh, multiple phases. Uh, we must be vigilant, but this is treason. This is treason that it is being allowed. It is treason that Congress is not doing anything. It is treason that, uh, and, and then when you have a state like Texas that actually declares an invasion, now they're being sued by the by the Biden administration. They're they're being, uh, you know, their hands tied. This is treason. Folks, you've been listening to Karen Sean. This is the Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network, with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. And I will see you again next week. <laughs>